This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. In the closing seconds of the episode last week, as I was talking about the Eucharist, uh, I made a statement which is true, and it's what the church teaches, but I realized as it was coming out of my mouth, as we were running out of time and the music began to play, uh, that it might have come as a surprise to some folks. And that statement was about the way that Christ makes himself present to us, that his presence in the Eucharist is real and true and actual and and profoundly uh, present to us in a spiritual way, but not in a physical way. And when I first became Catholic and I first began to understand that Christ, that the Eucharist was more than just a remembrance, that Christ was really present to us in a profound way— um, the people who were communicating with me were telling me the things the way that the church would say it, but my concept of what it meant to be present and and really present and truly present was firmly uh, lodged in the idea of materially present, of physically present. And so it took me a long time before I was able to wrap my head around what it meant for Christ to be present in a true way and not in a physical way, to the point that I've even heard uh, priests in homilies preach on Christ's physical presence uh, and until I had a little conversation with them about this book that we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're going to revisit an old conversation that we had back in 2018 with Dr. Lawrence Feingold, who uh, is an associate professor of theology and philosophy at Kenrick Glennon Seminary in St. Louis. He's the author of multiple books. The book we're going to be talking about today is on Emmaus Academic Press. It's called The Eucharist, Mystery of Presence, Sacrifice, and Communion. And Dr. Feingold unpacks for us uh, the, the beauty and the complexity of what the church teaches about the real presence. Let's listen to that conversation together. Dr. Feingold, thank you for being with us today. Okay. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So you have this this fantastic book. I get a lot of books in the mail from various publishers, and generally they're the the uh, maybe two hundred page, hundred fifty page variety of just inspirational living. And so you know, I didn't expect a whole lot more than that. I, did, I uh, confess I didn't uh, know much about you or the book. And it came. I asked for a copy of it, and it came in the mail, and it's like six hundred and sixty one pages. Uh, but I love this because I opened up the, just looking through the table of contents is almost theologically enriching just there as you've broken out uh, your questions and your topics down to uh, really small chunks. So you can find something just that's a, a bugging, a question that's bugging you and go straight to it, which is what I did. <laughs> and I, I want to talk to you today about the way in which the Eucharist, the sacrament of Christ's uh, passion, death, and resurrection, the way in which that comes to us, uh, which, of course, the church calls transubstantiation. So just starting off here, uh, you are a student of Thomas Aquinas. You've, you've just laid out this beautiful, really systematic theology of the Eucharist. Uh, but you know full well that sometimes language— can hinder us from a fuller understanding. So we we know the terms that Christ comes to us through uh, the changing of the substance of bread and wine, and we receive his body, blood, soul, and divinity. There's a lot packed into that right there. 
talk to us a little bit about what is meant by substance, what is meant by the accidental properties, the accidents remaining the same, uh, and help us maybe with a little glossary of how we can approach this and get a better understanding. Can I preface it by stepping back a little bit? Let me just start with the question, why Jesus wants to be present in that way. So I think it's really important to keep in mind first that Jesus wanted to devise a way by which his whole presence, his whole personal presence, could remain with us while he was leaving us. Mm-hmm. That's the, the problem that he, at the Last Supper, he gave the solution. He was about to leave his disciples. He was saying goodbye. He was about to die. He knew he would rise, he, but he knew he would ascend it to heaven and leave them. Mm-hmm. And so he had to devise a way in which he would leave them and stay with them, stay with us, but in a way appropriate to our situation as pilgrims still in exile this side of, of heaven that he was ascending to. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the problem. A personal presence that's total, that's all of him, nothing lacking, but in a way proper to our exile, and that means a way unseen, totally there, but also totally veiled, so that we could have the merit of faith. Mm-hmm. And then they just add one more premise before we get to your technical question, if that's all right. Absolutely. And the second premise is that he wanted to remain present because he's a lover. He's the bridegroom. We're the bride. He wants to be with us. And so the Eucharist is the sacrament of spousal love. And spousal love, first of all, wants to dwell with the beloved. When we get married, we want to be with our spouses. And it's a tragedy if its circumstances force us apart. But that's not the end of the story. So I just think, let me just add, he wanted to remain with us to give himself for us in sacrifice. And now I, we won't focus that here, right. but that's part of the piece. And so he comes to be present so that he can offer himself. But first he has to be present before he can offer himself. Right. And then he wants to offer himself, not just for us, but to us totally in Holy Communion. And also for that, he needs to be present. So he needs to be present to be with us. He needs to be present to be offered in true sacrifice. And he needs to be present so that he can give himself totally to us. And body, blood, soul, and divinity, nothing lacking, but in a way fitting to our pilgrimage in faith so that he's giving us in a way veiled. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's, that's the premise. All right, so how does he do this? Well, what would be a way to be present totally, but present in a veiled way? So he's going to be veiled by something else that we can see and touch. And so um, that which veils him, which will be the bread and the wine, is also meant to reveal the other two things that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. That he's come to give himself for us on the cross, sacrificing himself for us, separating his blood from his body. And so what he's, the veils have to represent that, his body and his blood. Right. And so the bread and the wine are chosen to represent his body and his blood separated from his body. And then he wants to give himself totally to us to nourish our souls with love, which he is. Right. And therefore, he wants the veils that can that both conceal and make 
him present to also represent that, that it's, he's nourishing us, and hence the bread and the wine. Mm -hmm. okay. So he's wanted to remain, to become present under these veils of bread and wine. Right. And so what better way to do that than by taking bread and wine and I don't want to say transforming, we'll talk right. about just making it into himself, <laughs> but in such a way that his self, which is present, is not seen. But what is seen is what was there before, the bread, and likewise with the wine, turning that into himself, turning it into his blood, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute, why he, um, so turning it into his blood, but all of him being present there, and I'll explain that, um, but keeping the appearances of the wine, the bread and the wine. And when we talk about appearances, we're not just talking about the look, we're right. talking about the, yeah. uh, the, all the ways in which we physically experience it. So the right. taste and the effects of the wine and uh, all of those th ways that wine generally would affect us the appearances come to us of the Eucharist that way as well. It affects us right. in the same way as the substance of wine would, even though it now is the substance of Christ. Right. The Catholic tradition, especially the, um, the medieval scholastic theologians, starting in the 12th, 12th century, make use of the philosophy of Aristotle. But I think it's important here to recognize that what we're talking about isn't one particular philosophical system, um, but really the philosophy of common sense. Mm -hmm. So in common sense experience, we all um, are able to distinguish um, what something is from what appears. Right. How something is, as opposed to what something is. Mm -hmm. right? And so we ask different questions. What is it? And substance is what answers that question. What is it? But then we can ask, how is it? And that would be the different aspects of the appearances. And there, philosophers give a technical term, accidents, accidental properties. Mm -hmm. So answering a different question, the how, as opposed to the what. So an accidental property is not something that happens by chance. It's something that is not essential to that thing's identity. So, for instance, exactly. I can be sitting in a chair, and that thing is a chair, even if it is made of wood. And the wood I could just as easily be made of metal or something else. The, the, what it is made of has no bearing on the isness, perhaps, the, what, the, the essential quality, the, the substance, as the, the philosophers would say, of that item. Right. So the, the substance would be... Um, something that the senses can't directly grasp, right? The, the senses, our senses, um, grasp the appearances of things, their accidental properties. And from that, our intelligence, our intellect, can grasp the whatness mm -hmm. and what a thing is, and we call that the substance, right? So our intellect grasps the substance, but our senses and all of that which prolongs our senses, microscopes, telescopes, and all the means of investigation, again, are grasping the accidents of a thing. Now, some of those accidents are um, could be replaced with others. Others may be properties that are proper to it, um, but there'd still be um, um, the accidental properties or or um, qualities 
are things that the senses grasp as opposed to the what it is that the intellect grasps. Right. All right. So Jesus tells, can, all right, ask you a question, sorry. So, so here we have uh, this question of transubstantiation because it is the mm-hmm. what, the, the isness of something that mm-hmm. is being uh, changed, trans, uh, turned into something else, right? It's, it's why we don't say transformation because the external form remains the same, yes? Right. Jesus expresses that in very simple terms in the Last Supper by saying this, holding up a piece of bread, right. is my body. And so he's using the language of is. Again, precisely what a thing is, we say is its substance. And so the face value of his words is saying this substance here, which mm-hmm. is bread at the beginning, at the end of the sentence now is his body, right? The what it is, is his body. But clearly how it looks, how it tastes, how it feels, how it smells, all of that remains the same as what it was before. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned something in the book uh, that I, I love. Um, you talk about it has to be a complete change. Christ has to be completely changed into, uh, the, the bread and wine have to be completely changed into Christ. Otherwise, it would make him a liar because he said this, mm-hmm. this is my body. Mm-hmm. If it had been Christ coming into the bread and wine, he would have instead said, here is my body because mm-hmm. the thisness of the bread uh, has to be what it is. And when he names it as this, he says the substance before you has now been changed and is my body. And that, that was a new way of putting it for me that I'd not heard before. Right. St. Thomas Aquinas makes that argument, right? That the very language used by Jesus at the Last Supper is the language of what is, and not a language implying a movement or some kind of accidental change. Right. Um, but one being into another being, one substance into another substance. Now, this is a very complete book. I mean, you you go through uh, the New Testament and the Old Testament and the fathers and uh, the controversies in the early Middle Ages and talk about the development of our understanding of the Eucharist all the way up to some recent magisterial texts on Eucharistic adoration. And you do this in just over 650 pages. And and yet, which which I think is small considering the undertaking you've done, uh, and and yet it's not intimidating at all. The way that you've broken it up, it's very easy to to come to and to read. You don't have to have uh, a master's in philosophy or theology to pick it up, right? It's eminently approachable. Uh, and so, if you're listening, go right now over to EmmausAcademic.com and pick up this fantastic book. I want to get to probably one of the most difficult concepts, uh, but I figure while I've got the expert is the time to do it. This question of of how Christ is present to us. Um, This is something I've not always understood, uh, really am still trying to wrap my head around, is that Christ is present to us full and entire, right? He's not, the host is not divisible. You don't get any more of Jesus or less of Jesus, depending on how big a piece the the priest gives you, right? We receive all of Christ as he presently is, his glorified body and blood and soul and divinity, right at this moment. But he comes to us and is present while he is not dimensionally so. 
He is present to us, but he is not present in the way that we understand other things to be present. So kind of explain how that specific idea or doctrine developed and what it means for us. Okay, great question. This is maybe one of the, certainly one of the hardest questions about the Eucharist. And that puzzled, um, puzzled theologians through the ages caused huge controversies in the ninth century, in the 11th century. Um, so let me see what I can do about this. Um, the first thing, again, keeping, I think it's really helpful to keep in mind, um, theology, uh, I'm sorry, make a preface here. Theology is looking at things through God's eyes. And so when we do theology, we want to put ourselves to a certain extent, insofar as we can, into the mind of God to see, um, and in this case, the mind of Jesus Christ as he's instituting the Eucharist. So the problem that Jesus has before him is to make himself present in a better way than he was present um, in his physical body, seen um, by his disciples and so forth, because he, he was subject to the limitations of space and time. So if he was in Galilee, he could only be in Galilee, and he couldn't be in, in Judea or in the United States, and um, likewise limited by time. So he wanted to make himself totally present, but in such a way that he would be totally present to his whole bride, mm -hmm. his whole bride being us, the church, throughout all the ages until he returns again in his second coming. And therefore, to be wholly present as much where I'm sitting right now in St. Louis, and where you are, and our readers, our listeners throughout the U.S. and the world. Um, and so he had to become present in a way that would not be bound by um, the limitations of dimension. And that's part of our common sense experience with the Eucharist, that we know that it doesn't matter whether we receive a big or small host, we get the whole of him. Well, and you, whether you're in line right in front of me, or whether you're in a mass several states away, you're not receiving a different Jesus or a part of right. Jesus. We are right. both receiving the whole of who Jesus is, his whole right. body, whole soul, all blood and divinity. Right. The whole of him, the whole of his one self. And so the way that he devised to do this was to take things that are in our space and time, bread and wine, the bread that's here in St. Louis or wherever the listener happens to be, and to turn that particular bread that's localized in our space into him. Mm -hmm. who is one, and into all of him. And so he now becomes present under, but keeping the appearances. So at first sight, we might say, why did Jesus want to keep those appearances of the bread and wine after the, the substance of it has changed into him? Mm -hmm. And the answer is twofold, or maybe even threefold. Twofold in the sense that he wants to keep those appearances, we said, so that we can have the merit of faith. Right. Secondly, he wanted to keep those appearances because they are meaningful. They're signs of what he is there for, to feed us, to nourish us, and also signs of his body and blood separate. And third, he wanted those appearances to remain because they are localized. They, are, they have dimension, and that dimension is in our space. Mm -hmm. But he wanted all of him to be under any of those dimensions. Right. So he became present in a different way. All right, so here, theologians make a technical distinction. Thomas Aquinas, this is part of the brilliance of Thomas Aquinas, he distinguishes two modes of presence, the mode of quantity and the mode of substance. The mode of quantity is a mode by which parts are outside of other parts. We look at our bodies and our nose is outside of our cheeks, outside of our chest, etc. 
And so we have parts outside of other parts. That's the mode of quantity that creates dimension, mm-hmm. uh, the foundation of the science of mathematics. But substance is present in a different way. And even substance meaning the essence of something. The isness, so, the whatness. Right. The whatness of bread and wine is equally present under all of the bread and wine, under any part of it. And what, right? So wine, the substance of wine, or the essence of wine, if you will, is equally present under any part of the dimension of the wine. And likewise, our own soul is mm-hmm. fully present in any part of our body. I can't say I've got a hundredth of my soul present in my pinky here. Um, it's not divisible. We're so. talking today with Dr. Lawrence Feingold about his book, The Eucharist, Mystery of Presence, Sacrifice, and Communion. Dr. Feingold, that indivisibility of substance comes out even as our language, as we talk about a drop of wine. Right or a glass of wine that explains what it is down to the, the, the very molecule of it. We can say the very molecule contains the fullness of the wine. Right. So Jesus becomes, because the substance of that bread and wine has been um, converted into Jesus, mm-hmm. into his body and his blood, his body and his blood is present under the appearances of the bread and wine, in the same way, analogously, that the substance of the bread and wine was present previously, and that was whole and entire under every part. Right. That's really the key. Jesus is present whole and entire under every part of the appearances of bread and wine after the consecration, as the substance of bread and wine had been present whole and entire under every part. As our own soul is present whole and entire under every part of our bodies. Right? But there's this difference. Um, our soul is present under every part of our bodies, but our body isn't wholly present because right. our body exists in the mode of quantity, parts outside of parts. Jesus wanted the whole of him, not just his soul, but also his body to be whole and entire under every part of the appearances of the bread and the wine, so that nothing of him is lacking under every part. And thus, it doesn't matter whether we receive a large part or a small part, we receive the whole of him. And for the same reason, it doesn't matter whether we receive him under both species or just under one species, we receive him whole and entire. Now, one last little thing, and of course, it's not a little thing, so we're going to try and and fit it in here. we hear often that through the Eucharist, the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross is made present to us. And yet what we receive is not Christ's crucified body, but we receive his glorified body, not mm-hmm. blood and, uh, and body separated, but whole and intact and entire, as you've just been saying. So how, how is it that we receive that sacrifice without it being a re-sacrifice, as some people accuse us of doing? All right. Great question. I need more time to answer that. But, <laughs> but, um, so the, the transubstantiation, the words said by the priest, which were said by Jesus at the Last Supper, make Jesus present as he is. All right, so that's the rule. So when those words are said, this is my body, his body becomes present as it now is. And it now is glorified. Right. right? Now, Thomas Aquinas poses the hypothesis just to, for... Um, the text for the classroom, for the blackboard. What if sacrifice, I'm sorry, the sacrifice of the mass had been celebrated on Holy Saturday? There's no reason to think that it was. Well, let's just suppose Peter had celebrated mass Mm -hmm. on Holy Saturday. 
if he had, if mass had been celebrated on Holy Saturday, when those words, this is my body were said, mm-hmm. it would have been just his body because at that moment, his body laying in the tomb was really separated from his blood, which got shed right. on the cross. And so the words, this is my blood would have made his blood present, but not his body because they were separate. And in neither one would have made his soul present because at the moment of his death, his soul separated from both his body and soul and went to the souls of the just who were awaiting him from the old covenant and, and right. the just, and that descended to the dead. And, and, but his divinity was united both to his body and blood and his soul, never to be separated from them. All right. On Easter Sunday, all of that got reunited. Mm-hmm. Body, blood, and soul, the divinity always being united. And so from Easter Sunday on, whenever Mass is celebrated, um, the words, this is my body, directly make his body present, but indirectly by way of accompaniment, also make all the rest of him present, which is his blood and his soul, mm-hmm. as well as his divinity. And likewise, the words over the chalice make not just his blood present, they make his blood directly present, but his body can't be separated with, from his right. blood anymore because he rose never to die again. Right. But it's still, there's a meaning though. There's a reason why he instituted the Eucharist with the two species and not just with one, mm-hmm. because it's not only the, sacri- the sacrament of his presence, but it's the sacrament of his sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And so the double consecration represents what physically happened on Calvary, his right. blood being really physically separated from his body for love of us to redeem the world. And of course, as we come and we receive the Eucharist and we receive into ourselves uh, the body, blood, soul, and divinity, we are uh, united to our spouse in that spousal love. You talked about why Christ became present. And and then we are uh, made sharers in his divine nature. And one of the things you mentioned here in the book, just a little snippet that I love, uh, you talk about normally we eat food and we digest it and we turn it into us, right? Our bodies turn that into us. And yet when we eat the the body and blood and soul and divinity of Christ, uh, we are not, we don't turn it into us. We are then turned into it. It transforms us more into the likeness of uh, image and likeness of God the Father through Jesus Christ by the working of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, St. Augustine so beautifully expressed that in his confessions. Mm-hmm. I'm making precisely that analogy. I eat the apple, I turn it into me, but I receive the Eucharist. If I And this, again, depends on my dispositions. So right. receiving the Eucharist, according, I have to be already in communion of grace, mm-hmm. in a state of grace to be, and the nourishment is to bring me closer into that communion that already exists to nourish that community. And therefore it's our d- disposition of desire mm-hmm. that according to the depth of our hunger and thirst for him, and we will be more configured to him. And thanks be to God, he's allowed us to receive him more yeah. than once. Today we are revisiting a conversation that we have with Dr. Lawrence Feingold back in 2018. Dr. Feingold is the Associate Professor of Theology and Philosophy at Kenrick Glennon Seminary in St. Louis, an author of the book, Eucharist, Mystery of Presence, Sacrifice, and Communion, available on Emmaus Academic. Buy a copy for yourself and another copy for your priest, and come be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls, and threads is also at step outside the walls. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. Today, we are revisiting a conversation that we had with Dr. Lawrence Feingold back in 2018. Dr. Feingold is Associate Professor of Theology and Philosophy at Kenrick Glennon Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, He's the author of the book we're talking about today, The Eucharist, Mystery of Presence, Sacrifice, and Communion. It's available on Emmaus Academic. You can find out more about them over at EmmausAcademic.com. This is one of my favorite conversations in all the, the eight, nearly nine years that we've been on the air, uh, because it is such um, such an important foundational aspect of our faith, and yet it's one that I think very often is misunderstood. Uh, and so I knew that I wanted to bring this back out specifically after the beginning, the, the very end of the show last week. Uh, wanting to make that distinction and to talk more in depth about what does it mean for Christ to be present to us in a true and real but not physical way. So the trick in all of that, though, is that back when I had that conversation with Dr. Feingold back in 2018, the show was a shorter show, uh, and we also had, had a little bit different format. And so I couldn't just pull out the old show and 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 rerun it as we have done with a couple of other episodes very few times, but, uh, but still this one was going to take a little bit more effort and, um, and planning to make it happen. So one of the things that we're doing today, uh, in order to make this episode, uh, from back in 2018 fit the length of the show today is that we're going to take that extra segment that we record each and every week that we make available to our Patreon supporters, Uh, We're taking this previously unbroadcast segment and we're making it available to you now. And in this segment, Dr. Feingold and I continue to talk about uh, this important piece of theology, but we also talk about his journey into the Catholic Church and the place of beauty in his conversion. For more extra segments like this, go over to OutsideTheWalls.com and click the Patreon link now let's join that conversation. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Dr. Lawrence Feingold. This is one of those that I just kind of geeked out over because uh, I was expecting a tiny little book in the mail like I always get, and this thing's like 100 pounds, uh, 650 plus pages, just packed full yet accessible as he unpacks for us what it means for Christ to be made present in the Eucharist. His book is The Eucharist, Mystery of Presence, Sacrifice, and Communion, uh, which I have just barely scratched the surface on. I I went to a few key chapters of things I wanted to talk about, but uh, I'm going to be using this over the next year kind of as my spiritual reading when I go to the adoration and pull it out and uh, just read until the Holy Spirit kind of strikes me and says, okay, focus on that a little bit. Because you've gone through and you've quoted the fathers and you've quoted uh, the doctors of the church and you bring out Thomistic uh, theology and you talk about how uh, Christ is uh, and the Eucharist is hidden in the Old Testament and how those types are revealed in the New. I mean, it's just a really thorough but supremely approachable book. Uh, and again, that's on um, Emmaus Academic press, go to EmmausAcademic.com and pick up your copy. How, so this is obviously something that's very dear to your heart. Um, you, this is not the first book that you've written, but uh, you, you also wrote on the mystery of Israel and the church. 
and uh, you you seem to like Thomas Aquinas because you talk about the you have a book the the nature the natural desire to see God according to Saint Thomas Aquinas and his interpreters. How did you get to where you are? What was the the driving force that took you from where you were raised and your theology there that brought you into this deep natural desire to see God according to Saint Thomas and his interpreters? Right. Well, I was actually raised an atheist. Um, so, um, Jewish atheist father, and um, I never prayed in my life until I was 29. Mm. And, and what led me to the faith was beauty, actually. So art, so Christian culture, that would be a whole nother right. uh, talk in itself. And, and marriage was the second thing. And so our conversion happened to my wife and myself together um, on the occasion of the birth of our son and her okay. pregnancy. And that's a whole story in itself. Um, but then after our conversion, um, I wanted to study theology. And, um, and so I set out um, at 30 to, to study philosophy and theology. And um, it's been a really beautiful thing for me. Throughout my formation, I wanted to, um, I didn't just simply want to be an academic, mm-hmm. but um, um, the idea of um, forming, um, so forming, um, the priests of the church is a, a beautiful mission. So seminary formation has been a, a wonderful experience for me. And um, teaching in the seminary um, is a, it's on the one hand, it's a challenge. To, they're not academics, but um, it's what seminary education requires that one integrate. So we talk a lot at the seminary about integrating the academic or intellectual, in other words, the study of theology with three other dimensions, the human formation, spiritual formation, the life of prayer, and pastoral formation, which is transmitting that word, right? And so all four of those strands have to be woven together. And that's a really beautiful thing, to give integral formation. So this Eucharist book has come out of teaching at Kenrick Seminary. So of course, I've taught for six years. Mm-hmm. And so for every class I teach, I write a book, and it gets um, improved over the years. Right. And so, so the the seminarians you know, make an input in that. So you're teaching at the seminary. You are forming mm-hmm. those who will be bringing us mm-hmm. the Eucharist, and mm-hmm. and you are in many times, many uh, occasions, you are shaping our priests, our future priests' understanding of what it is that they're bringing to us. Uh, you're taking them through the Old Testament. You're giving them the full picture. You know, not just. Like one of those uh, huge pictures that you can zoom into the smallest little quantity. I don't know if you've seen them online, but they're mm-hmm. just massive gigapixels, I think they're called. And you, you look at the whole picture, but you can drill down and see like the postage stamp in there uh, and, or back out and see the whole city. And and that's uh, in, in a way what you've done with this, with this book. Um, I'm very encouraged that our seminarians are being formed in this way. You know, we hear about the the vocational crisis uh, talk to us a little bit about what you experience from the seminarians you form and what your, maybe your, your hope is or your vision is for where the church is headed. Yeah, no, it's so encouraging teaching in a seminary because um, what you, I mean, the vocation crisis, um, we don't see it in, inside the seminary walls. We see young men and sometimes not so young men, whether it's their later vocations as well as um, that are, um, are driven by um, a love for the faith, 
a love for transmitting a faith, a love for Jesus Christ, his mother, a desire for formation. Um, and of course, they need to grow up and, and mature and be formed. Um, but anyway, it's a, it's a really beautiful experience that um, I don't think anything actually gives more optimism for, um, or John Paul II used to say that, um, well, stress the idea that the, the church is forever young mm-hmm. and modeled on Our Lady, the youngest creature right. in creation. And um, you see that at the, the seminary, that perennial youth of the church. Well, and so I, I just now made the connection. You're the uh, an associate professor of theology and philosophy. So you get them like fresh when they come in for their first philosophy mm-hmm. years as well. Yeah, it's beautiful to see them in all the different years. So I, I might teach them over the six years of their formation, mm-hmm. two years of philosophy and four years of theology. We talked and, about this integral formation. And, and of course, the, the church specifically is calling for our priests to be formed in that way. But it's also, as we, the baptized, have experienced a universal call to holiness, it's something right. we ought to be paying attention to as well, not just our academic but our, our internal and our, uh, the way that we interact with others, which could be called the pastoral, as we are supposed to be ambassadors of Christ just by virtue of our baptism. Uh, right, the common priesthood. The, 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 we're supposed right. to develop our prayer life. Uh, here at the very end of your book on the Eucharist, you talk a little bit about Eucharistic adoration. Rather than getting into the theology of it, tell me uh, a story of a time that you discerned the presence of Christ more fully in uh, in a time of Eucharistic adoration? Well, I can, let me start with the first experience I had of it. So as I mentioned, I was brought up an atheist, so I had, it was not on my horizon. I was drawn to the Catholic Church by the things represented in Christian art. Mm-hmm. And, and, but I wasn't prepared for the real presence. And so the first time it hit me was, um, Two months before we were baptized, our child had just been born. We just had this conversion experience. This is maybe two months after the first time I'd ever prayed in my life. I took a pilgrimage to, to St. Peter's. We were living in Italy at the time. And I was walking down to the nave of St. Peter's. And to my right, I saw um, two angels sculpted by Bernini. Mm-hmm. That I, there they were side or on St. Peter's, and little did I know, it was the Blessed Sacrament Chapel, and the two angels of Bernini were sculpted to adore the monstrance. So I peek inside the chapel, um, looking at the angels, and I felt my breath kind of pushed out of me, as it were. I felt um, shoved, as it were, yeah. spiritually. And I looked around, and I saw there was a monstrance, and everyone was adoring the Blessed Sacrament, which I really didn't know anything about, but there was something incredibly attractive about it. And so I went into the Blessed Sacrament Chapel and knelt down and was moved to tears without fully understanding. Now, the odd thing was, two months later, we got baptized in the Anglican Church in Florence, <laughs> despite that experience. But um, two months after that, we ended up um, asking uh, for entrance to the RCA program. That was 1988. Okay. So that was my first experience. Okay. That's Not a- no. That's but a, then, of course, it grows. And so what Catholics, I ought to experience more in adoration every day mm-hmm. that, I, that we do it, right? Right. It's slow and cumulative, and it's according to the measure of our love for him. 
And, you know, I, I love that story because you don't have to fully understand it or even to have some intellectual assent for it to be efficacious. Mm-hmm. Right. Right? You, you had no intellectual assent that first time you went in, and yet exactly. there was power in that encounter with Christ. Right. Uh, and so, you know, I, I would say to someone who maybe says, you know, the, the church schedules it at weird times, and I don't really have the time to do it, and it just feels weird to sit there and stare even there's the story of a father who's approaching Christ for the healing of a son. And he says, uh, all things are possible for him who believes. And he says, I do believe help my unbelief. And there are times where I, that's, that's my prayer throughout the whole of, of the encounter with the Eucharist, simply because I know as much as I love the Eucharist and love the idea of the Eucharist, I still have so much to grasp. There's still so much that, that even if I am not actively unbelieving, that I, I don't have the fullness of belief that Christ is coming to give himself to us fully uh, as he is now there in the Eucharist. Love, uh, love that story. Um, as we close here today, uh, is there anything else that, uh, that you would want to leave with us just about your... Uh, your work, about your experience of the Eucharist, what, what's the one encouragement you could give to us to maybe go a little bit deeper? Yeah, the, well, the Eucharist is simply unexhaustible because it's, uh, it's the sacrament of love, right? It's the sacrament of charity. And so it has all the aspects of love. So that's kind of where we started, mm-hmm. that it's the love of our bridegroom who wants to be with us forever, wants to be with us, though in a way, by which we can merit believing him, not seeing him, not touching him. Um, But he also wants to be with us, giving himself. So there's that whole dimension of sacrifice. That would be a whole nother talk or interview uh, or session Um, and drawing us. And, but that's such a beautiful reality of the Eucharist because that allows our whole life to be drawn in. So Jesus doesn't want to be offered alone. Mm -hmm. He wants to be offered with his bride. And that means with, the whole life of his bride, and therefore our whole life. So you were talking before about um, the common priesthood of the lay faithful. Um, our common priesthood incl- is so global. It includes, sure, includes all the trials, the difficulties, witness when it's difficult, but it includes the joys of the Christian life, the joy of the gospel, mm-hmm. simple recreation, the whole of our life. We can bring, um, with, can offer to the Father with the Son. And then after we've offered the whole of our life, what do we receive? We receive the very source of our life, Jesus Christ in communion. And so the Eucharist is everything. And it it contains the whole of the divine life. And it's the means by which we're fed with the spirit. And so Pentecost coming up and the Eucharist, although obviously a distinct sacrament from confirmation, sacrament of giving the spirit, nevertheless in the Eucharist, we are nourished with the Holy Spirit right? and inflamed with it evermore. Um, and in such a way that we, so the progressive nature of Eucharistic communion um, and offering, in other words, he gives himself to us so that tomorrow I can make a better offering mm-hmm. by, because inspired by more of his, his love communicated through his spirit. And then therefore I can receive him better. And that better receiving tomorrow will enable him me, hopefully, draw for myself better still the next day. And we could call that the Eucharistic life. Right? He, the Eucharist 
gives us the principle of the life of the kingdom, well, which it, is this vital circle. And it brings us deeper and deeper into this metanoia, this changing mm-hmm. of ourselves mm-hmm. and our and our natures into that nature which we were created to be, the image right. and the likeness of God, sharing in his divine nature. Right, right. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Uh, I encourage you all to go get this book, The Eucharist, Mystery of Presence, Sacrifice, and Communion. Dr. Feingold, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Great pleasure. If you missed any part of my conversation with Dr. Feingold, or you want to go back and listen to it again, maybe catch some nuance, or share it with your friends on social media who might have questions about this, this idea of Christ being present to us in the Eucharist, well, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. There you can find uh, some other conversations we have with Dr. Feingold about another one of his books on, on sacramental theology and the sacramental economy. Just go over to the guest list, scroll down until you find Dr. Feingold's name, and there you'll find uh, the, the time that this conversation occurred the first time way back in 2018, that second book, and then this one today as well. You can also find all of our other conversations there uh, looking through to see what other topics might be of interest to you. And if you can't get enough after looking through those archives, well, I've got good news. There is more. There's always more as we have an extra segment that we record and make available to all those who support the show through Patreon. This last little bit that we heard with Dr. Feingold was the Patreon segment last time around, previously on broadcast, and we've made that available for you here. There's much more where that came from. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link to learn more. Now let's turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking scripture to the catechism, to the fathers and doctors of the church, magisterial documents, biblical commentaries, original language research, and so much more. A huge library at your fingertips. You can learn more over at verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 17. And as Dr. Feingold said, Jesus wanted some way to connect with his disciples, uh, including you and I, after he ascended. And so we hear that a little bit in this prayer uh, where Jesus prays to the Father for you and for me specifically. He says uh, in the Gospel, lifting up his eyes to heaven, Jesus prayed, saying, I pray not only for these, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, so that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me, and I have given them the glory you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be brought to perfection as one that the world may know that you sent me and that you loved them even as you loved me. Father, they are your gift for me, and I wish that where I am, they also may be with me, that they may see my glory that you gave me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world also does not know you, but I know you and they know that you sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I 
in them. That reading comes from the Gospel of John, where Christ himself prays for us. Now, towards the end of Dr. Feingold's book, he's got this section on Eucharistic adoration, and he pulls this passage from, uh, from Cardinal Ratzinger's book, Spirit of the Liturgy, which uh, was reprinted in the year 2000 by Ignatius Press. You can still get it. It's still in print. It's a fabulous book. And uh, I, I want to bring that little passage. Normally, we go back and we get a, a passage from one of the church fathers or church doctors. But in my, in my heart of hearts, I'm convinced that one of these days, uh, Benedict will be one of our doctors of the church. So uh, because of that, I don't know if that's correct or not, but that's my conviction. So let's go ahead and read this passage from the Spirit of the Liturgy on Eucharistic devotion. Transubstantiation, the substantial change of the bread and wine, the adoration of the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, Eucharistic devotions with monstrance and processions, all these things, it is alleged, are medieval errors, errors from which we must once and for all take our leave. The Eucharistic gifts are for eating, not for looking at, these and similar slogans are all too familiar. It is plain for all to see that already for St. Paul, bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ, that is, the risen Lord himself who is present and gives himself to us to eat. The vigor with which the real presence is emphasized in John chapter 6 could hardly be surpassed. For the church fathers, too, from the earliest witnesses onward, just think of St. Justin Martyr or St. Ignatius of Antioch. There is no doubt about the great mystery of the presence bestowed upon us, about the change of the gifts during the Eucharistic prayer. Even a theologian of such spiritualizing tendency as St. Augustine never had a doubt about it. Indeed, he shows us just how far confession of faith in the Incarnation and Resurrection, which is so closely bound up with the Eucharistic faith in the bodily presence of the risen Lord, has transformed Platonism. He is here. He himself, the whole of himself, and he remains here. This realization came upon the Middle Ages with a wholly new intensity. It was caused in part by the deepening of theological reflection, but still more important was the new experience of the saints, especially in the Franciscan movement and in the new evangelization undertaken by the order of preachers. What happened in the Middle Ages is not a misunderstanding due to losing sight of what is central, but a new dimension of the reality of Christianity, opening up through the experience of the saints, supported and illuminated by the reflection of the theologians. At the same time, this new development is in complete continuity with what has always been believed hitherto. Let me say it again. This deepening awareness of faith is impelled by the knowledge that in the consecrated species, he is there and remains there. When a man experiences this with every fiber of his heart and mind and senses, the consequence is inescapable. We must make a proper place for this presence. And so, little by little, the tabernacle takes shape. And more and more, always in a spontaneous way, it takes the place previously occupied by the now-disappeared Ark of the Covenant. In fact, the tabernacle is the complete fulfillment of what the Ark of the Covenant represented. It is the place of the Holy of Holies. It is the tent of God, His throne. Here, He is among us 
His presence really does now dwell among us in the humblest parish church, no less than in the grandest cathedral. Even though the definitive temple will only come to be when the world has become the new Jerusalem, still what the temple in Jerusalem pointed to is here, present in a supreme way. The new Jerusalem is anticipated in the humble species of bread. So let no one say the Eucharist is for eating, not looking at. It is not ordinary bread, as the most ancient traditions constantly emphasize. Eating it is a spiritual process involving the whole man. Eating it means worshiping it. Eating it means letting it come into me so that my I is transformed and opens up into the great we, so that we become one in him. Thus, adoration is not opposed to communion, nor is it merely added to it. No, communion only reaches its true depths when it is supported and surrounded by adoration. The Eucharistic presence in the tabernacle does not set another view of the Eucharist alongside or against the Eucharistic celebration, but simply signifies its complete fulfillment. For this presence has the effect, of course, of keeping the Eucharist forever in church. The church never becomes a lifeless space, but is always filled with the presence of the Lord, which comes out of the celebration, leads us into it, and always makes us participants in the cosmic Eucharist. What man of faith has not experienced this? A church without the Eucharistic presence is somehow dead, even when it invites people to pray. But a church in which the eternal light is burning before the tabernacle is always alive, is always something more than a building made of stones. In this place, the Lord is always waiting for me, calling me, wanting to make me Eucharistic. In this way, he prepares me for the Eucharist, sets me in motion towards his return. The changes in the Middle Ages brought losses, but they also provided a wonderful spiritual deepening. They unfolded the magnitude of the mystery instituted at the Last Supper and enabled it to be experienced with a new fullness. How many saints, yes, including saints of the love of neighbor, were nourished and led to the Lord by this experience? We must not lose this richness. If the presence of the Lord is to touch us in a concrete way, the tabernacle must also find its proper place in the architecture of our church buildings. That reading comes from the book The Spirit of the Liturgy by Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger uh, before he became Pope Benedict XVI. It's available on Ignatius Press. It's one of my ongoing favorites. Uh, Please go pick that up. This is a real simple read, and it's deeply, deeply enriching. Because Christ made present to us comes to us as he is now, resurrected in all of his glory, in all of his fullness, and invites us by the work that he did on the cross through his passion, his death, and his resurrection, invites us to be unified to the Father. That's all the time we have available for today. Thank you for tuning in. Today's show is brought to you by Lexi and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to Outside the Walls. Click that Patreon link to learn more. Be a part of the conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On threads, the handle is also at step outside the walls. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.